What up, AOTA family? Welcome to Passing Period and All the Above Podcast Extra. We do these in between our full episodes. Y'all know that. Our our show is primarily a video show. You could catch that on the YouTubes or on your favorite podcast streaming app. And in between those full episodes, which are chock full of guests and news and headlines and shout outs and dope stuff, um, we like to drop these passing periods where it's just Jeff and I talking about stories that maybe didn't make it into our most recent full episode. And... Um, I am Manuel Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher, and I'm here with Jeff. And Jeff, you know, so much going on in the world, like always. And I I see that we came across a story that, from my vantage point, has been sort of underreported. What are we what are we talking about today, Jeff? Well, Manuel, uh, today we have an interesting story coming out of the learning. Policy Institute. Uh, Janelle George, who's a senior policy advisor at LPI, uh, just this week published a piece that, yes, like the story it's naming, I think kind of flew under the radar a little bit. And uh, I was fascinated to see this. I think our I think our audience is going to be interested in it as well, um, which is, you know, so at the end of last year, at the end of very end of 2020, Congress passed this big federal funding legislation, the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2021, which funny enough, I think was passed actually in 2020. But um, nonetheless, um, you know, it included COVID-19 relief funds and um, was connected to the whole debate about the government shutdown and all that stuff. Uh, But a provision in this legislation uh, could be a really interesting one for the nation's uh, school systems. And what it did was remove a longstanding obstacle to states and school districts uh, working to intentionally create integrated schools um, because the government had previously had a prohibition on funding transportation as part of efforts to integrate schools. So, you know, if you want to integrate your schools and it it involves like kids going from one side of the city to the other side or, you know, crossing district lines or that kind of thing, can't use federal money to pay for transportation. Now, uh, and frankly, folks should know in a lot of district contexts, transportation is actually a huge expense. Right. Um, So it's not this is not an insignificant issue. Um, And uh, this is interesting. Right. Because as, as a nation. We have a huge uh, systemic problem with school segregation, I think, as lots of folks know, with more than half of the students in the United States going to what is often called by the researchers hyper-segregated schools, meaning uh, 75% or more of the students um, in those schools uh, are from the same, um, you know, the same racial background, okay? So... uh, you know, this this is interesting, man. Um, it remains to be seen what this will actually mean, right? Like how many districts will try to access um, federal funding for this purpose or whether, you know, uh, the U.S. government would actually allocate greater funding to be used for this purpose, for example, right? So lots of unanswered questions still, but it's kind of a barrier to these efforts coming down, which is a which is an important reversal from a, a now longstanding trend of our government kind of speaking out of one side of its mouth saying, yay, Brown versus Board of Education. And yet, uh, you know, whether it's through Congress or whether through the courts, um, actually creating higher and higher and tougher and tougher barriers 
you know, to prevent integration efforts at the same time. So um, fascinating story there, Manuel. And I, you know, I'm curious, um, what was your take when you heard about this? Well, for me, it was interesting because these prohibitions against federal funding for transportation that is is used to support integration, these prohibitions have been in place for decades, like decades, and for them to no longer be there, especially as part of this this larger bill back in December, my first question is like, well, what what was the difference this time? Like how, what type of work happened behind the scenes to get rid of these prohibitions this time around? And, you know, part of me, part of me, wonders what role the uh, Department of Education had in any of that discussion, any of those negotiations, because of course the Department of Education at the time was headed up by your, your homie, your, 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 you know, um, your hero, um, Betsy DeVos. And I just, it just doesn't seem like something that I would have expected under or to happen during uh, Trump presidency and, and Betsy DeVos reign at the Department of Ed. And of course they might not have had much to do with this at all. I mean, the Learning Policy Institute article that we're referencing here by uh, Janelle George mentions the the advocacy work by the National Coalition on School Diversity and, and how they've been fighting for decades to get rid of these prohibitions and it finally happened. I'm just, you know, I'm, I guess I'm kind of surprised that it happened now um, at this time. But in any case, it also brings me back to thinking about busing as a a solution um, or an approach for school integration. And much of this article focuses on magnet schools and how important magnet schools have been in desegregation efforts and how transportation is a big barrier for a lot of families who would otherwise want to send their kids to a magnet school on another side of the, of the city or in another uh, district. So, so yeah, I don't, I don't, it's tough. It's tough because now uh, the school I work at is a magnet school, newly magnet school. I mean, the school's been around forever, but it is a magnet school. And I know that the the type of magnet it is, um, which is type of magnet school that is is referenced in this in this piece, it's it's one whose mission is to support integration. And that's a tough one for me. That's a tough one for me for lots of reasons that I could get into, but in general, it's just uh I get I I'm pleased to see that whatever barriers that were in place to prevent funding going for transportation, like, yeah, get rid of those barriers for sure. But for this to be something that's like a, I don't know, a really big step in the right direction, I don't, I, just, I don't know. Like, I guess I'm curious and I would love to hear more um, from folks who are, you know, really ingrained in the scholarship around this. I like to hear more about like the long game here and if this actually is gonna contribute significantly to Taking taking a chunk out of that hyper segregation that that exists today. Yeah, yeah. I so I definitely uh, am feeling you on that, Manuel. And I, I'm going to say something here that I think is um, is controversial. Uh oh. Um, <laughs> hold hold your horses, people. Um, <laughs> that's the wrong expression. What is it? Um, I don't know what it is, but you know what I mean. Uh, get ready, yeah. people. Brace for horses impact. are held, people. Yes. Um, so. The longer I have worked in education and the more that I have read really thoughtful, great pieces like this piece from, from Janelle George, want to make sure we're not, um, what I say here is not coming across as a critique of her. I really appreciated her piece and, and the work that uh, the folks at Learning Policy Institute are doing. Um, that said, I find that persistently when we're talking about school integration and school segregation, to me, we are framing it 
in uh, in an improper way in that we are always starting the conversation with the extent to which students of color are segregated. When I think both from a absolute numbers standpoint and from a who's controlling this system directly or indirectly, right, systemically standpoint, segregation in this country is is really a phenomenon of white people concentrating themselves <laughs> in, into districts and pushing others, right, or removing themselves from places where integration, uh, you know, is, is more of a phenomenon. And this is definitely one of those examples of how racism, white supremacy play out that is, that is, you know, sometimes is about individual actors, but is very much about like the large systemic stuff, right? Redlining, housing, covenant agreements, um, the yeah. drawing of school district lines, the court decisions that, you know, govern how you can and cannot, you know, address segregation across district lines versus within district lines. All of that stuff compounds together to a country where, to me, it is historically evident and a fact that the real story of segregation is one of white people segregating themselves, primarily, right? And, um, and of course, the other side of that coin is students of color being racially segregated or concentrated into certain areas. Um, the negative effects of segregation on learning... I would argue, are overwhelmingly the result of the compounding economic and political factors that have come with all of these larger societal forces, right? Where do they put the police who come around and harass and shoot people? Uh, where do they concentrate their efforts on arrests and mass incarceration? Where do we not have good grocery stores and, you know, access to medical care and green spaces and all the other stuff that just makes life harder in these segregated communities of color than it is in these segregated white communities? But I think it's important in this discussion that we be disciplined about framing the issue as like, this is a problem that white people created, and it is a problem that is also causing deep pathologies in the white spaces that it has created. And so in as much as I appreciate the research, the really good qualitative and quantitative research that's gone into looking at like what's the cost on black and brown students, particularly low income black and brown students of having to exist within school in these segregated contexts, right? Because it, those costs are not insignificant. But I think we also need to start talking about the cost societally of having segregated white spaces, right? So what if alongside the data points of like, what's the impact on the reading level of black kids when they go to hyper-segregated schools? What if we also looked at What's the, you know, how many of the white kids who go to hyper-segregated schools become employers who discriminate in the hiring process, right? Or become people who, uh, you know, don't allow tenants in their building who are tenants of color. Or become the people who are themselves the folks following you around the store because they're suspicious because you're black and you walked in. Or, you know, they, they discriminate against you. that They're the abusive police officer or whatever it might be, right? And, and I think, of course, that data is maybe harder to gather, but we got to start talking about, like, the pathology of whiteness within whiteness and the pathology of white supremacy that is fed, grown, and sustained by segregated white schools.
Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, a lot of thoughts come to mind based on what you just said, um, thinking about a few things uh, in particular to my school context. One thing that you just mentioned is, is you know, the impact, the long-term impact of uh, white students attending hyper-segregated schools um, and their their role down the line systemically in in various aspects of outright racism or or quote unquote implicit bias when it comes to hiring and and um, all that. But it, it brings me to our most famous alum from the school that I teach at, the high school that I teach at, uh, and that's Jackie Robinson. And I remember a few years ago somebody pointing out that we need to stop talking about or or phrasing. Jackie Robinson's accomplishments as him being the first black person in the major leagues, um, and instead point out that he's the first black person to be allowed in the major leagues, um, which speaks to your point about the segregation is something that has been created by uh, white Americans. And we need to consider the fact that when it comes to um, items like this, you know, the segregation was, was, was purposeful, it was it was built, it was established um, through the years, and we need not only think about segregated schools as being black and brown schools that are segregated from whites. We need to rem remind ourselves the, the way that these schools got segregated in the first place. And in thinking about Jackie Robinson as being the first black person allowed to play in the major leagues, um, it also brings me to another famous alum from our high school, from the high school that I teach at, and that's uh, Rodney King. And this week was the 30th anniversary of the Rodney King beating. And the officer who inflicted the most blows on Rodney King attended a school that's just six miles from our school. And if you look his school up today, you'll see that their student population is less than 1% black. The school I teach at is, is primarily black and Latinx population. And of course, we have a lot of other groups there as well. And my point here is that these two attended school just about six miles apart from each other. And one of them grew up to be this racist police officer. Uh, he presumably had few, if any, black classmates. And Rodney King at that time was surrounded by a lot of black and brown students. Actually, the school at that time was much more diverse than it is now. And speaking to your, your point about long-term impact, how much do we focus this conversation around the impact on white students of going to schools with predominantly white populations and not being exposed to people of color, not being um, integrated in that sense. Yeah, I also think our school right now, being a magnet school, the stated goal is to promote integration. And I don't know the extent to which that benefits our existing population our existing population certainly is benefiting from the magnet programs. Big time, I'm a giant proponent of our magnet programming, um, our early college programming. I am a giant proponent of all the changes that have taken place at my school over the last several years. But for me and my students who are there, I, I, I don't think very many of us think of it in terms of like, we're doing this in order to bring in or entice more white families to choose our school. I think on paper, that's one of our goals, but in reality, for the folks in the buildings, really the goal is just to improve the educational outcomes of our students, period. And it would be great if we have more families choosing to come to our school. We have space and we have all the great resources to, to support kids from all backgrounds for sure. But it is a tough conversation to have with, with the folks in our community. Like it's just a tough conversation to have about like why we're doing this. Cause of course, some of, some of my students, you know, they wonder if all these things are happening now because 
um, our school wants white families to choose us. And then it's like, well, why didn't you do this when it was just black and brown kids here? You know, and it's like, how do you yep. answer that? You know, like it's tough. Yeah, I, I, it's a profound question, right? And honestly, Manuel, the, um, you know, I said earlier, I was going to say something controversial. I don't, I don't know that I actually said the controversial part, which is <laughs> I have come to the point now where I question whether integration is actually the best use of our of our like effort and resources around racially ju racial justice in schools right um, clearly we have massive record to show that outside of of a relatively small set of sort of like liberal enclave situations on the whole the powers that be that align racially and class wise don't actually support integration and I think and will fight hard to oppose it in the most sinister and and you know duplicitous of ways right we had a whole podcast you know nice white parents that everybody in America listened to and felt real good about checking out but then like didn't necessarily want to like really have a conversation about actually maybe we don't want integration and in that context I wonder if what we should be doing is raising the cost of segregation to what it actually is. So in the same way that we have efforts to like, uh, you know, make big companies like Exxon Mobil and Walmart or whatever, right? Like they they um, externalize the costs of paying their workers nothing because the rest of us pay for food stamps and Medicaid and things for their workers, right? Um, or they spill oil and we pay to <laughs> clean up the river or whatever, right? Uh, you know, we have all of these costs that come with underfunded, hyper-segregated schools that serve the most oppressed aspects of American society. Um, well, then we need to invest two, three, four times the funds into those segregated school settings to actually do what you're just talking about. All that programming should have been at the school to begin with, right? <laughs> and we don't need white kids right. there in order to, uh, you know, to, to offer those things, right? And it is a sad reflection on the state of affairs in our country that in order to get those things, we have to be, we have to attach it to the presence of white folks. Um, and I wonder if we should just start attacking that because, you know, there, there's so many, the efforts to integrate have become so Swiss cheesy with kind of legal loopholes. and Swiss and, cheesy. I love it. <laughs> you know, but they, there's all these ways that they just get around it, right? And even if you get right. kids, diverse kids, a diverse set of kids within a school, like the high school that I went to, the segregation persists within the school, right? Oh, yeah. And so I'm like, maybe what we need to be doing is just changing the conversation to be about we need massive influxes of resources, true equitable funding, right? So I'm not talking about a little bit more. I'm talking about two, three, four times as much funding in the communities that have been intentionally harmed via segregation uh, to make that stuff right. And if we do that, <laughs> then maybe the openness around like, you know what, maybe we could go to school together and share <laughs> might be different. But in the meanwhile, we need a whole lot more resources than we're getting. And even with the presence of white folks, those resources aren't coming to our kids. Right. Swiss cheesy. That is that is a vocab term for today, folks. Um, and to your point of areas that 
or populations that have historically not been getting the the type of support and type of funding. I mean, so much of this is is crystal clear. Like our our school is in what was a red line neighborhood, um, and just you could look across the United States at neighborhoods that were were redlined and. Nine times out of ten, or ninety-nine times out of a hundred, that area is is still still struggling, and that is where perhaps the triple funding comes in because you have such a clear delineated history of of lack of funding, lack of economic support. So if we're going to address that, it's not going to be addressed by busing in a couple white families from another side of town. It's going to have to be addressed in a much bigger, more substantive way. Uh, Jeff, I do have an idea of of how we could solve all this here. Um, I think the solution is is more standardized testing because I think we got to see where the kids are, you know? <laughs> how are you going to solve anything if you don't know where the kids are, Jeff? So uh, I'm sure you're very pleased, pleased to have seen over the last couple of weeks that the <laughs> Biden administration intends to um, hold states to this year's round of standardized testing. So maybe that'll solve it, Jeff. I don't know. What do you think? You know what I was just thinking, man? Well, actually is... You know, why why stop the learning loss conversation at at COVID, right? I mean, we've had learning loss since Brown versus Board of Education, right? Um, which is when we at least said there should be fairness in you know in education. So let's calculate all the learning loss from everyone who's been in school since 1954 to today. So I think the like 75 year olds, you know, who who were like in third grade, a testing year uh, uh, in 1954. I think they should test this year too because we should assess what the learning loss has been and then we should put them in Saturday school and give them double blocks of reading and math so that they can you know um, recover so that we can address the learning loss because that's that's what's really important right now I mean so thanks man I just like boom light bulb moment light just happened bulb. for me here <laughs> yes. we yes. need to expand testing to everyone because that's how we're really gonna address all the learning loss. Boom, there you have it. Um, I think I need to invest in some of these testing companies, man, because it's about to be <laughs> woo, it's about to be good that, times in the in the standardized testing well, industry. That Pearson stock is, is gonna be like game stock, man. <laughs> I'm saying though, man, could I trade yeah. uh, on, on the Robinhood app? Could I trade stock in these testing companies? Because uh <laughs> Jeff, you know, we have debated about whether or not schools are gonna fully reopen, and I believe we placed a, a twenty dollar bet. I at the time of that recording, that was uh, I don't know, four or five passing periods ago. Um, I did not envision a possibility of us returning to in-person instruction here in California across the board, you know, throughout the state because of just how bad things were. And things were really, 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 really bad at the time. Um, we're talking, you know, 0% ICU capacity and, you know, in, at least in Los Angeles County, we're talking about like 14, 15,000 positive uh, COVID cases a day. And my, how, how things have changed. The tides have turned. Numbers are, are way down in terms of, ca of cases in Los Angeles County. I, I check every day and, and uh, Los Angeles County is, is instead of being 14,000 positive tests a day, we're hovering around like 1,500 a day. Vaccinations are way up. I got my first, my first shot a little while ago. And the momentum around reopening schools has shifted dramatically to the point where we, I mean, my district, they're opening TK through second grade um, this month. And uh, I think second through fifth grade, early April, I think is the plan. I'm sure LAUSD, although there's still a lot of particulars to be worked out with the unions, uh, with the union, um, it just, it, it looks like 
for sure, at least the little kids are going to be back in person if they're not already. And I think across the nation, I don't know what percentage, but it just seems like most elementary schools especially have gone to hybrid, if not full in person by now. So I believe I lost that bet, but that makes us even because we bet <laughs> on whether or not we'd even start school in person. And I was like, hell no, we're not starting school in person. And you're like, nope, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. And uh, I won that bet. Um, so now we're even. I guess the pandemic's over, Jeff. It, it seems like a Disneyland's opening back, opening back up and the way folks are talking, it's like, I mean, Texas, all them, Texas, Arizona, Mississippi, all these states saying no more mass mandates, full capacity. Jeff, is it is just, is the pandemic over? Well, the, clearly the pandemic is over. Um, and, uh, you know, so obviously we can just move on. Let's go cough on each other and lick some subway poles, man. I mean, let's do it. Everything's fine. That's disgusting, right? Jeff. Uh, it, <laughs> it is totally disgusting. Uh, you know what I, I was thinking about the other day, Manuel? I was like, America's behavior collectively right now, and there's lots of, lots of blame to go around here, but we're like a patient who has a rash, right? And goes and gets a cream from the doctor and then you use the cream for like two days and you're like, oh, it's not itching anymore. Like it's kind of not that, you know, it's not that red anymore, not that pink or whatever. Uh, I guess I can stop using the cream. <laughs> like that's that's what we're doing, right? And then a week later, we're like, oh, why is my rash back? Like it, it is, there's a certain degree of just irrational insanity that, uh, that we're living with around this that um, isn't actually funny, but I mean, it's sort of like cosmically funny how ridiculous we are behaving when you look at the rest of the world who is like largely living normal life, uh, you know, with some precautions, right? But like are, are not anywhere near as ridiculous as we are. Um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's crazy. I did win that bet. I think we're even now. And, um, you know, I think... Uh, I'm, I'm not proud that I won that, <laughs> that uh, I'm winning, I guess I should say, that, that this uh, comeback bet. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's happening. Um, I just hope that, I guess, the pace of vaccination is such that these moves that we're seeing are not going to result in a real downward trend this summer. Yeah, same, same. I mean, I, I hope we really are really are looking at uh, not even, I mean, a return to normal is the wrong phrase, but I'm hoping that there's not like a new wave, of course, with the variants and folks like relaxing their guard. Obviously the CDC has said like, oh, it's too early to just like act like it's over. Um, but you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that we're not going to see what we saw over, over the, over the holidays when it was just, um, just, just so, so, so sad how many folks were packing the hospitals at that time. So I definitely hope that that is behind us. And, you know, my whole thing has been as far as like in person, from my teacher perspective, my whole thing has been like, make it safe, get us our vaccinations, and I'll be totally, totally uh, willing to go back, you know, and during those, a lot of those reopening debates and, and reopening rallies and all that stuff like they're trying to blame teachers for not being willing to go back into a, a crowded room with young people without having been vaccinated and they're trying to make it seem like teachers were the big hiccup like teachers weren't doing enough and you know that was just so disrespectful and so i i just i think back to that moment that week or two that we had last last spring when folks were like wow teachers are are man they're really truly heroes they're they're having to teach online now and they're they're stepping up to the plate we love our teachers they're keeping school and 
you know, that lasted about a week or so. And then here we are now, teachers and teacher unions being being the ones holding up the process and, and not being willing to do their part. And I just hate that discourse. I really, really, and I really, really hate the idea that we're actually going to um, possibly be testing students. And, you know, Jeff, you wrote a great piece that outlined the reasons why uh, testing is is a terrible idea right now. So we'll link that under this under this for folks who, you know, if you're listening to this and you're like, ah, oh, but it's just, you know, why not just see where, where students are? Why not just see um, what what they do on these tests? Like, what's the harm in that? What could, you know, why not? Um, we'll link Jeff's piece under this post. There's there's lots of reasons why. And just to summarize it, spoiler alert, um, the, the data from that would be less than useless. Um, it would just be completely, completely just pointless um, in all sorts of ways. So we'll link that so you can read that um, for for more. But Jeff, we have a new Secretary of Education now, officially. Indeed. Yeah. Miguel Cardona has been uh, confirmed by the United States Senate, uh, becomes the um, the new Secretary of Education, and the, the ghost of Betsy Past uh, has now officially been banished from what I think is the the Lyndon Baines Johnson building in D.C., which I think is where the home of the the U.S. Department of Ed is. I, I might have to like, might have to no, double, no. double check that, man. I'm, I'm pretty sure. I, yeah, yeah. I thought the, they called it Super Principal's Office. Is that not what they call it? <laughs> it's, it's, yes, it's the Super Principal's Office. I'm pretty sure it's the LBJ building. Okay. Uh, so. Yeah, you know, I mean, the I think the reality is Cardona is a pick that is kind of non-controversial because nobody knows a whole lot about him nationally, and he's not necessarily one to like push a lot of controversial policy. But um, the policy that they put out before he took office, which was an interesting move, because uh, I think they wanted to relieve him of <laughs> having to announce. A policy that, in my mind, is so deeply misguided and stands to do very real harm to schools, kids, and communities, uh, like moving forward with standardized testing this spring, uh, is they're looking for him to just sort of be a, a, a competent administrator who doesn't make waves. And all intention, you know, for all intents and purposes, I think that's likely uh, to be what he does. And then he'll have the nice opportunity to make some some wins because Betsy was so bad that even just doing a competent job will make you seem like a superhero next to her. So, uh, that is true. You know, we'll see then we'll see, man. Yeah, we'll see. And folks, we want to, you know, I want, I also want to, before we get out of here, read just a piece, just a, a bit of, of a message that we got in our, in our mailbag. And of course, we, we invite you all to, to shoot us a message on, on Twitter at AOTA Show or our Facebook page. Although, I don't know that we keep up on our Facebook page as much. As much. Um, or email show at gmail.com. But we got a message from a teacher. I didn't ask this teacher for permission ahead of time, so I'm not going to name them just in case. But I just want to read just one line from the The message was about how they are um, you know, this has been a challenging year as it has been for all teachers and they really appreciate our show and something that they said in the message was, um, quote, I admire so much of what you both share as it aligns with the many things that I aspire to change in the system. And I just think that's really reflective of um, where a lot of our, our viewers and, and listeners and, you know, Jeff and I um, ourselves, where we are, you know, we, we are really, really 
trying our best as educators to bring meaningful, positive change um, that will especially be supportive of our most marginalized students who have for so long, so long been underserved in education. And it's really a difficult work, I think, for, for a lot of y'all out there who are listening because you might be at a school site or in a district or in a, in a region where everyone around you seems to not see what, what you see in terms of um, how you see these policies and the impact on, on students and how so much could be done better. And sometimes it's like, am I the only one who sees this? Am I the only one who realizes this? And that could be really, really tough, tough spot. And I know for myself as a classroom teacher, teaching full-time and doing the show, like it's tough, but at the same time, like I so value this community. Those of y'all who, who listen and give us feedback and uh, of course are super dope guests because it's a reminder that like, I'm not in this work by myself. Um, there are great folks out there who I can learn from. And I, I, I learn from all of our guests who come on the show. And, um, you know, I just want to shout out that, that teacher who sent us that message and all of y'all who are listening, who similarly are of the, of the understanding that um, kids deserve better than what they're getting right now. And we're going we're gonna to do what we can together to impact positive change on our school system so that all of our students can, can be their true, full, full, complex, brilliant selves and be served to the best of, of our abilities. And also, speaking of that, next week, you know, Jeff and I were thinking about the guests we've had and all of them have been super, super dope. And it occurred to us that we haven't really had an elementary teacher, a full-time elementary teacher on the show, I don't, I think ever. Uh, Jeff will correct me if I'm wrong. But um, so next week we got a super, super dope teacher, a third grade teacher who is also actively involved in her union, um, actively involved in several, several organizations that, that um, help advocate for teachers and students. So she's involved in, in some policy work and she's just all around dope. And we're going to speak to her about her experience being an elementary school teacher during this time of, of not just distance learning, but also these debates around reopening and also about her, her advocacy work for teachers. Her name is Megan Surreal and she is incredibly dope. So definitely look forward to that next week. If you missed our episode last week with uh, Dr. Tanette Powell and, and uh, Dr. Tanika Orange, who's speaking about the relationship between public schools and the and black families, uh, black families in the public school system, definitely you don't want to miss that. Like that was that that was it right there. Like if you have any questions and concerns about why the reopening debate seems to be really, really falling along like racial lines in a lot of, a lot of ways. And if you have any concerns or, or questions about why um, black families in, in many cases aren't um, really trusting of the school system, like they lay out the history of, of how the school system has, has really, really marginalized black voices um, and, and black families and, and how to move forward from, from, from here. So definitely check that out. As always, if you appreciate what you've heard, uh, five stars go a long way. So please, please consider rating us and reviewing us. And I, I believe that is it. All right. So we will catch you one week from now. All right. Get to class, folks.